really good to see you and good to be with you this morning. It's uh, great to be on the other side of Labor Day. For some of us, we think that somewhere in the book of Leviticus, it says that school shouldn't start till after Labor Day. So we tend to kind of re-engage with the life and the rhythms of uh, church. And so if you've been, if you're coming back to Peachtree, haven't been gone for a while, it's, it's great to be with you and to have you a part of our worshiping community we're in the midst of a series of messages where we're talking about habits. We're talking about little changes that we can make in our life that end up yielding a significant impact. And so we're talking about how even the faith affects us uh, on the behavioral level. And we're trying to change the scorecard for who we're becoming as a people. Um, so it's not just attendance in buildings and cash in the church. It's about us becoming more grateful, more available, more curious, and more encouraging. And for the last month, we've been talking about kind of cultivating some habits that help us to become more grateful as God's people. So we've talked about keeping a list. We've talked about setting it aside, owning your stuff, and training at table. And if you haven't kind of gotten on board with this series of messages, one of the homework assignments I'd give you would just be go to the website, check out um, you know, one of the kind of message archives and check out one of those things if there's a particular habit that might help you to become more grateful in your life before God. Because we're shifting gears to talking for four weeks about being available. Uh, coaches will often say that the best ability is availability. It doesn't matter how talented you are. It doesn't matter how gifted you are um, as long as if, if you're not available. And so you got to be available to be coached. you got to be available to play. And so we're going to discover some habits that help us to do that, to turn it off, to light a candle, to take a knee, and to become drop-in ready. And so today we're talking about turning it off. And I understand how incredibly ironic it is that I'm starting a message on turning it off by asking you to turn your attention and look at the screens. So let's look at the screens right now. almost feel like you could just close in prayer after that video, right? Because it's so convicting to see what's becoming of us. Maybe you notice as well as I do that we as a people are turning into these people. We are becoming smartphone zombies. And that our addiction to our screens and our attentiveness to the smart devices that we have seems to be taking over our lives. And Modern society is having to kind of come up with new rules and reconform to what it means to live together in a smartphone reality. We change signage today to let people know that other people are not necessarily paying attention. 
In China, they have walkways because they've had so many problems that you have a designated lane that if you are texting and walking, this is the lane that you are in. And if you're not texting and walking, you are in the other lane. In Tel Aviv, they actually put the lights for the crosswalk on the ground because they notice that people are looking at the phone and they can see kind of the ground beneath them, but they're not looking up to see if it's safe for them to actually to cross the street that we are so addicted to our screens that we just don't notice what else is going on. And so scholars often refer to this era that we are in as the age of perpetual distraction. And there's a lot of external as well as internal forces that are bringing about this particular age. So I want to start with this. I want you to turn to somebody next to you and answer this question. According to the CEO of Netflix, who is their greatest competitor? Turn to somebody next to you and try to answer that question. Surprisingly, Netflix considers their greatest competitor not to be YouTube, it's not Hulu, it's not any of the streaming services or Apple or any of the other media companies, it's not traditional cable. The CEO of Netflix has named that their biggest competitor is sleeping. And then he followed up to say, and he said, and we're starting to win because they have the data to back up that sleeping is on the decline and the use of streaming video services is on the rise. Uh, scholars will often refer to this as the attention economy and a guy by the name of David Kinneman says that the emperor of digital Babylon is the algorithm that tells you what you are to see next, what you're to watch next, because Netflix and many of these other services, they don't wait for you to be done with one thing before they're already introducing something else into you. And many of the Silicon Valley offices, if you were to go to an office of a Silicon Valley executive, you would see this book there that's written by a Stanford professor and it's called Hooked. And it's subtitled, How to Build Habit-Forming Products. Because you need to know that Organizations like Google and Facebook, they want to be able to capture your attention because they have figured out ways to be able to monetize your attention. That they know that if you're paying attention to them, then they're able to actually translate that into income. And so there are all these incredible, in today's technological age, these, these forces that are trying to capture and to hold your attention. And if we could actually go back and put up that previous slide of Hooked um, up on the screen, I want to show you, you notice where the cursor is on this screen? The cursor on the cover of the book is pointing at the base of the, the brainstem. And one of the things he talks about in the book is that there is a race to the bottom of your brainstem because they don't want you to think. They just want you to be hooked. They just want you to be connected to their product. And I'm guessing that this is true for you, that you don't have to pray about whether or not you're gonna pull out your smartphone and you're gonna look at it. You don't have to think about it deeply, you just do. There's lots of internal pressure for this. 
Um, one social scientist talks about how the reason that we look at our cell phones most often is that we're looking for a little bit of internal escape. That you're looking to escape from some boredom or you're looking to escape from some pain or you're looking to escape from some anxiety or more recently they've discovered that a lot of people look at their smart devices because you want to escape from the feeling of being trapped. That many of us feel trapped in today's day and age in jobs that we don't like and in positions where other people are telling us what to do. And so kind of our little form of rebellion, our little kind of beachhead of liberty is that even when we're on the clock with somebody else, we're able to pull out our smartphone and we're able to look at it. And we feel like in that moment that we're in charge. But you need to hear plainly from me, when you do that, you're not in charge you're not free, you're a slave to something. The primary habit of an age of perpetual distraction is this habit right here. I wonder if you can relate to it. You wake up in the morning, you reach over to your nightstand, you grab your smartphone, and you just start what they call the endless scroll. And you just keep doing that, and 15 minutes goes by, and 30 minutes goes by, and 45 minutes goes by. Have you ever, just kind of truth-telling moment, have you ever woken up in the morning, pulled out your smartphone, and started scrolling over and over again, and then you kind of look at the clock and you're like, oh my gosh, I've been in bed an hour doing this. I can no longer work out because my finger is the only thing that got to work out, and in this moment, and you have almost no idea what happened to the time, that you were there for so long, but you, you don't even really know what happened or what you got out of or learned out of that moment. So if, if you find yourself as a person struggling, being stuck in the cycle of the endless scroll, let me ask you to ask some questions of yourself. When, when you find yourself doing this, ask yourself, what am I looking for? Because a lot of the times we're doing this and we don't even really know. Or maybe you're doing this, you need to also ask the question, what am I trying to win? Because the way that this technology is set up is based on the psychology that's the same psychology of slot machines. And it's a gamification, a little hit of serotonin, an intermittent reward for you to keep doing this are you trying to win the approval or likes or are you trying to win another level at that game or in that loyalty system or whatever it is? What are you looking for? What are you trying to win? And if social media is a particular distraction for you, ask this question. When did consuming others' lives become more important than living my own? And when you think about the scripture of Jesus and promise of John 10.10, 10, that I come that you have life and that you may have it abundantly, that you may have it to overflowing, that you may have life that is to the maximum, is this, honestly, is this what Jesus had in mind with that promise? But we've become smartphone zombies. And so what's the impact? What's the impact of being stuck in the endless scroll and the influence of these external and these internal pressures on, on us and our lives? That uh, Many scholars will refer to this instead of interference, they'll call it technoference. And there's a lot of impact on our lives. The first thing is, is there's impact on your health. 
I mean, you saw on the image of the, the screen the distracted driving. Uh, driving under the influence used to be one of the most dangerous factors out there in motorized vehicles, but that's not true anymore. Now, uh, more people are injured and killed because of distracted driving than that of driving under the influence. And you probably read the same headlines of the same articles that I see that as we use and overuse and abuse technology and particularly digital platforms like social media, that the more you use it, the higher the levels of anxiety, the higher levels of depression, the higher levels of loneliness, the higher levels of living a more sedentary life and not eating as well and not taking care of ourselves, that the more we use it, the more our life goes in the wrong direction with our health. And so that's one of the impacts on our lives. The second impact on our lives is productivity. A significant percentage of the U.S. working force spends two hours of their workday on their smartphone. Add that up, 10 hours a week. A quarter of your time on the job, you're spending on your phone, probably not in direct productivity of what your employer is paying you to do. And so it's harder for us to do our jobs. There's not just an economic impact. There are other types of impacts for those types of distractions on us. I read this great study. It had to do with, with the nursing industry. Did you know that if medical accidents were a disease, that it would be the fourth leading cause of death in the United States? And that one of the most significant and important jobs of a nurse is to accurately and appropriately dispense medication, and there are 400,000 medication disbursement accidents that happen every year in the United States. 400,000, a, a, a cost to taxpayers of three and a half billion dollars because of giving people the wrong medication. Why does this happen? It happens because nurses are interrupted so frequently they did a study where they found out that nurses are interrupted when they're dispensing medication somewhere between five and ten times every time they're trying to dispense all the medication. And so no wonder things go wrong. They have this one little fix, which I thought was amazing. They, they put a, a vest on a nurse that says, do not interrupt. And the number of errors goes down by 50% just by wearing a vest. It's amazing how distractions can have an effect on our productivity. And one of the things the nurses reported on the backside of that study was, was how much better they felt like they were at their job if they had little moments where they could actually pay attention to what they were supposed to do. So there's health implications, there's productivity implications, there's also relational implications. I'm guessing you feel the same thing that I do is that that what we really get today is only partial attention from people. What you might refer to as fractured presence. I remember being in Africa last year and you have me so well trained to communicate in kind of contemporary American society that I know subjects have to move quickly, there has to be a certain energy to what we're talking about, and that I cannot and should not go over 27 minutes when it comes to a, a message because I'm going to lose you. I went and spoke in Africa, and, and like I got done speaking, and they were like, why are you done speaking? You should talk some more. 
I'm like, they never asked me to do that in my church in America. They're like, continue. We have more time. We would like to listen to you some more. It was kind of weird. And it was because they were fully present in the moment and they didn't have in a rural village of Malawi the same distractions that afflict us today. Kelly and I usually go on a nice Christmas date and we went to a really nice restaurant and, um, and at this restaurant we got seated at the table and, and next to us was like a family of four and each kid had its own iPad. This is a really nice restaurant. Had an iPad with noise-canceling headphones and then the, the parents were sitting there doing the scroll thing. Kelly and I walk by the table. Kelly sits down and because I always know what my wife is thinking, she says, she says, and that right there is what's wrong with America. Because we have a problem where we're not present with one another. We're alone together. We never give anyone or anything our full attention. Some of you are putting your smartphone in your pocket right now because you're realizing now what the subject of this sermon is. But we send people up to the balconies sometimes to count how many people are here. It's amazing how many of you are on your smart devices while I'm talking. We take pictures of you. <laughs> We're going to put you in like a video that makes fun of people like that, like we did at the beginning. And then I love this quote from Justin Early. He says this. He says, when we try to be present everywhere, we end up being present nowhere. When we try to free ourselves from the limitations of our presence, we always become enslaved to absence. But when we embrace our reality of being able to be present only in one place, we find the deep joy of being present someplace. This is the nature of the incarnation. God asks you to be present in a moment in time. And it's hope for you to become available one of the other implications is to our souls. I feel like there's a, a spiritual emptiness. I mean, do you feel this way as well that's on the rise? That the way that we're living now is kind of chipping away at our ability to be present before God and our souls. I mean, if I were to sit down with you one-on-one, -on -one, let's say you were, to, you were to come to my office and say, okay, should we spend 30 minutes together watching another show on Netflix or should we spend 30 minutes together maybe reading a scripture and talking about it and meditating on it, praying over it? What, what would be really better in the long run for us? I, it's probably not a hard decision if we actually stop to think of it, but the race to the bottom of our brainstem, it's just taken over. So you probably don't need to be convinced anymore. These, these things, the technology, nobody wants to go back. They're good gifts, but we use and abuse them such to the point where they're hurting us. So what can we do about it? Well, earlier this summer, um, I forgot that I'm not 20 anymore, and engaged in some physical activity that I had no business doing, and, um, and I injured my back. Never had back problems before, never had back pain before. And so now I'm having to go to 
uh, physical therapy. And I'm gonna show you a picture here. This is one of the exercises that they make me do. This is Lindsay in the screen at the top there. She's my physical therapist. And um, they, have this, um, they have this phrase on the wall of the physical therapy kind of studio. It says, we get people back to doing what they love. I hate that phrase. <laughs> I hate it because, because it means that they get to hurt me in order to make me better, to make me stronger, to get me back to what I'm supposed to be doing to what I was designed to do. I had my first session with Lindsay and part of it was just kind of a, uh, an assessment physically, but also kind of, you know, the things that I, I do. And after, you know, kind of talking to her for a while, she's like, well, stop doing that, stop doing that, stop doing that, stop doing that. And we're gonna start getting you to do this and this and this and this. She's like, got any questions? I'm like, nope, that's pretty clear. Stop doing, start doing. She's like, yep. And if I was your spiritual therapist, that's what I would stand up here and I would tell you. I would say in order for you to get back to doing what you love, in order for you to get back to doing and living the life with abundance that God has in store for you, you got to start doing some things, but you got to stop doing some things too. And one of the primary stop doing things that the Bible talks about is called what they call habits of resistance. So there's disciplines of engagement spiritually, and there's disciplines of abstinence, and there's embrace, and there's resistance. And one of the primary habits of resistance from the Bible is known as fasting. And all the major characters of the Bible fasted. Moses fasted, Elijah fasted, David fasted, Esther fasted, Daniel fasted, Apostle Paul fasted, Jesus fasted. In fact, Jesus says, when you fast, in the Sermon on the Mount. It's not like, well, if you do this, and somehow, meaning that following Jesus is going to involve some form of fasting. And fasting is what insulates us against excess and having our gods attuned to the wrong kinds of things, putting our hopes on the wrong kinds of things. And what I would like to do today is I would like to, I would like to expand the concept of fasting beyond food, that it's an ancient practice that applies to more than just our diets. That fasting is that habit of resistance where you intentionally stop doing something in order to push back against something else. It would mean like instead of technoference engaging in a techno fast, it's a way of you subversively fighting back against digital Babylon and the algorithm, the emperor of our day. Take for example Moses. Moses we know fasted and Deuteronomy 9, it puts it like this. He says, uh, when I went up on the mountain to receive the tablets of stone, the tablets of the covenant that the Lord has made with you, I stayed on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. I ate no bread and I drank no water. The Lord gave me two stone tablets inscribed by the finger of God and on them were all the commandments that the Lord proclaimed to you on the mountain out of the fire. And on the day of the assembly, so Moses goes up the mountain and he carves out this little sacred space for him to be available to God, to receive the revelation of God. Aren't you glad that Moses wasn't so busy tending to the fire or having to hunt something to prepare for the food that, that he was spiritually dialed into God for him to receive the incredible blessing and gratitude that is the Ten Commandments to see how we are to live in right relationship with him. 
after the first service, on one of our new prayer cards someone handed to me, which was not a prayer request, it says this, and I quote, technically, Moses was the first person with a tablet downloading data from the cloud. This person is no longer at Peachtree. (laughs) But Moses made himself available to God. But in order to make himself available, he had to push back against something. Jesus is in Samaria this one time, which was known as kind of enemy territory. Traders lived in Samaria. They were half-breeds. They were looked down upon. And Jesus is at the well, and he's had this profound encounter with the woman at the well, and the disciples were gone, and it says this, meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something, but he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. What is this spiritual food that Jesus has? What is it that happened that when he was hungry and he wasn't eating, that he was pushing back against something else, and because of that, he was able to feast on something else? So what would techno-fasting look like for us in our day and age? Let me just get really kind of boots on the ground practical with you real quick. Let me give you a couple of tips. One would be to limit notifications. Do you really need to know in the exact instant that your favorite news media outlet wants you to know? Do you need to know what that breaking news is? Probably not. Do you honestly need to know when somebody liked something of yours, a photo on Instagram? Probably not. I can tell you that when I kind of got a hold of my phone and I actually scaled back notifications to the bare minimum, it made a difference in my life that my phone had a little less of a grip on me. Second thing you do is to have a place for your device. Have a home for your device, particularly at work or um, at home. And uh, for for me, I have a cabinet in my bathroom, which is where my phone goes when I get home. And you might say, why is it in the bathroom? It's because I don't have a tendency to hang out in the bathroom. And so it goes there, and I'm able to be more attentive to my family when when I'm home. It's got to be out of sight, out of mind. It's got to be not like over on a table, face up, or you can still kind of see it. That doesn't do you any good. That's not a place for it. Put it away. Another bit of advice would be nighttime mode. A lot of us are struggling with not sleeping enough at night, and our phones are a contributing factor to that insomnia. And there's some great little tools on your phone uh, to kind of limit what can happen at nighttime. Another form of limitations is boundaries for children and students. They won't necessarily have the natural skills as digital natives to know that there ought to be limitations on this. I'm not necessarily proud of it, but um, one of our one of our tool favorite tools as a family is called R Pact, which puts some limitations. And you know, instead of me yelling that it's time to come down for dinner, I can push a button and all the technology shuts down upstairs, and it's like, Dad and then they're ready to come down for dinner. It's amazing. Um, Gosh, I love that power. It's not holy, but I love it. 
You know you love it too, honey, don't you? Oh, it's so good. So boundaries are going to be important, but hopefully your parents aren't egomaniacs like we are. Um, and then the last one is just real simple, turn it off. And I hope you'll write this down. Will you please do it? An hour a day, a day a month, a retreat a year. An hour a day, a day a month, a retreat, a vacation a year. Is that really so much to ask that an hour a day you just turn it off? What if somebody needs to reach me? There was this period of time 20 years ago when nobody could reach you and it was amazing. You'll be okay. One of the things I respect that my wife does is that when she goes on vacation, she knows herself well enough to know that she'll check work email and so when we go on like significant vacations, she, she literally deletes her work email from her phone so that she has to like reinstall it in order to re-engage with work. It's just a really good way to, to kind of turn it off. This is a cockpit for an airplane and as you can imagine, flying an airplane is an incredible responsibility. And if something's going to go wrong that's going to hurt lives, it's, it's going to typically be in the first 10,000 feet when you're taking off or the last 10,000 feet when you're getting ready to land. And so the, what they call, it's a term in the aviation industry, it's called the sterile cockpit. That for that first 10,000 feet and that last 10,000 feet, the pilots can't chit-chat or talk except for essential communication about what they're doing. There's no connection to their devices. The flight attendants can't talk to them about anything unless it was absolutely essential emergency for safety. That in the aviation industry, they've created this little sacred space, this little cocoon, this sterile cockpit so that they can do what they're called to do as a pilot. And I think in order for you to fly through life successfully, you're going to have to do that same discipline. What would it be like for you to create that sacred space, a little key moments in your life where you have a sterile cockpit at the center of your life. Several years ago when our oldest daughter was born, um, every once in a while, um, I would do that 3 a.m. feeding and get up and I didn't want to get up and I'm tired and uh, I get the bottle and I get the bottle ready and I would put Danica in my arms and I would get the bottle and she'd start working on the bottle and then I would turn on Sports Center and I would catch up on all the important news that's really essential to my life. <laughs> like where is Antonio Brown going to play <laughs> this week? And I remember this one time, I've got the bottle going, I'm shaking, I'm feeding and I'm watching Sports Center at 3 a.m. and 
And I'm looking down at Danica, and she's looking up at me with those big eyes. I'm like, what are you looking at? That's creepy. Because <laughs> the glow of the TV set, I could see her, and she could see me, and I was looking at the TV, and she's looking at me. I mean, it's just 3 a.m. foggy brain, like, Rich, what are you doing? Turn it off. You've got this little invitation, this, this little moment, this little gift. It doesn't last very long. And so create that little sacred space. And let's pray. God, we begin today by asking for some help in becoming more available to you. We know that we've become zombies in an age of perpetual distraction. That there's all kinds of companies and organizations that want to grab and hold our attention, that there's that race to the bottom of our brainstem, and they want to hook us in. And we ourselves are a part of the problem. We want to escape. We want to escape the boredom and the pain and the feeling of being trapped and anxiety. And so, God, we're stuck in the endless scroll when you offer eternity before us. We don't know what we're looking for, and yet you're looking for us. We don't know how to win, and yet you have triumphed for us. And so, God, forgive us for trying to consume other lives instead of living the abundant life that you have for us. Take away our distractions, our fears. Thank you for your continued presence in the midst of our own fractured and partial presence. And in the midst of the emptiness of our age, will you fill even our souls? Help us to stop doing some things so that we might get back to what we love. Empower us to fast so that we might create that sacred space. And so God, for one little thing that you would convict on the hearts and the minds of your people, will your spirit just pour that into what people are supposed to hear right now. And in the midst of the chaos of our age, give us the boundaries to have that sterile cockpit to live the life and to fly in the way that you've called us. And we pray that in Jesus' name.